All right, this is lesson number one, how to study the Bible. And uh, what we're going to do for three weeks is look out, look at how the Bible's laid out, look at what's called uh, dispensationalism, which helps us with Bible doctrine. And then our final lesson is actually called the nitty gritty and where we talk about how to actually bog down and bear down in the Bible. If you're a Christian, you should be studying your Bible on a regular basis. I won't go so far to say every day, but if you're hungry enough for it, it'll probably happen every day. And uh, there's a huge difference, and I think we'll cover that here. Maybe it's in the fourth lesson. There's a huge difference in just reading your Bible and studying your Bible. When you study your Bible, you get a lot more out of it. When you read it, you just pass time. And we've all read something, not just the Bible. We've all read something and got to the bottom of the page and said, wait, what did I just read? The answer is nothing. (laughs) And it's possible when you study the Bible or read the Bible, wait, what did I just read? Nothing. Your eyes skimmed words. Your brain occasionally hit the top of a word or two. And then you realize your, your mind had drifted somewhere else. So studying the Bible is totally different. And that's what we're teaching in this class. But we have to give you a good general overview of the Bible and how it works. And uh, one of our lessons are the study tools available to Bible study. And just, just for the record, any one of these lessons would probably be a semester course in seminary. So we get to cover it in 45 minutes. Just to let you know, we're not going to do it justice. Amen. So this, this lesson's called The History and Organization of the Bible. So let's jump in there. There's a lot of information to cover. The word Bible, of course, comes from the Greek word biblion, which means book. And I love it. God called his book, book, <laughs> as if there's any other. He called it the book. We call it the Holy Bible, the Bible, the book, because there's really no other book that matters. We're all for books that are about the Bible. We're all for Christian study books. But ultimately, there's only one book that matters, the Bible. The Bible is made up of 66 books. And it's broken into two testaments, and we understand that. The Old and the New Testament. The birth of Jesus Christ signified the beginning of the New Testament. And we, it's the authors, or excuse me, more modern translators that broke the Bible into two testaments. Originally, it was not two testaments. And we'll cover that more later. Uh, not, God never said there is two testaments. He said we're under a better covenant after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what you and I understand to be the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Bible doesn't call that New Testament. That was just when the Bible was organized and laid down. Uh, They said, all right, this is where things changed. It's after 400 years of silence at the end of Malachi. The Lord began speaking again through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The heavens were closed until uh, the Lord was baptized in the River Jordan. And so then we have this new beginning or this New Testament. Most folks would agree, or most theologians, that the Gospels are really more like transitional books because they're translating or trans, uh, transitioning us from the old covenant into the new covenant. And so it's not to the end of the gospels when Christ is resurrected that we're actually officially in the new covenant. So you have to get to the end of the gospels to actually find new covenant. Up until the resurrection of Christ, the gospels are still dealing with old covenant. All right, like I said, you could spend a semester in seminary on this stuff. 40 different men wrote the 66 books of the Bible over a period of 1,600 years through 40 generations of mankind. And what is so powerful, and we don't have time to reveal it or show it or debate it, is the the synopsis or or, or the continuity 
of all these 66 books. It lets you know there is only one God speaking through these holy men of old. As a comparison to the Quran written entirely by the prophet Muhammad, who they call to be a prophet, we don't consider him a prophet. But the Quran was written by one guy. Our Bible was written by 40 different guys. The writers had various backgrounds, which also is so unique that our God would use not just one kind of person, because there's no elitism there. He would use multiple kinds of people to write his book, because God's not a respecter of persons, nor is he impressed with our education, nor is he uh, put out by our poverty level. But if a heart walks with God, then God will use that person because of their heart. So they had various backgrounds and educational upbringings, including kings, Kings, certain kings wrote parts of the Bible. Priests, prophets, judges. That that sounds pretty noble. And then we get to shepherds, fishermen, scholars, statesmen, poets, even a medical doctor. Luke was a medical doctor. He wrote Luke and the book of Acts. The Bible was not divided into chapters until 1228 AD. So that kind of encourages us that when we're reading the Bible, don't feel like you have to stop at the end of a chapter because you might pick up a more important meaning in the next verse, which is, you know, chapter 17, verse 1, or chapter 4, verse 1. So don't feel like, all right, well, I've read four chapters today. You might have actually missed the idea of flowing because, you know, the, the translators or those that put the, um, the chapters in there and the verses, they felt like they needed to put it... To them at that moment and where God was speaking to them, that seemed like the end of an idea, end of a flow, but it may not have been. And so sometimes you need to keep reading into the next chapter. The Old Testament was divided into verses. So we had chapters, but no verses for another 200 years. The Old Testament was divided into verses in 1488 AD, followed by the New Testament in 1551. And so, of course, we did this so that in Bible study, you could get everybody literally on the same page. Instead of saying, uh, turn with me about 15 feet down the roll of the scroll of Isaiah, 15 feet. I said 15 feet. <laughs> or 17 pages. Well, my, my Bible's only 14 pages. So they decided, the scholars did, to break it up, and then they standardized it. Thank God it made it easier for everybody. Amen. Just like it was, uh, was it Mozart or was it Bach? No, no. Who, 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 father of modern music theory? Bach. Bach. is Bach. Why did he pick A, B, C, D, E, F, and G for your notes? Because he wanted to. But now the whole world is standardized. He could have called it one, two, three, four. One sharp, three sharp, five sharp, five flat. But he went with A, B, C, D, E, F, and G for musical notes. That's just what he wanted to do. And so the whole world is standardized by modern music theory developed by Bach. And so we have chapters and verses. And the Lord, you know what? Amazingly, the Lord honors it. Because the Lord has spoken to many people. Psalm 91. Read the 23rd Psalm. Turn to Isaiah 9. And so the Lord honors that because it's how we relate to things. Amen. This is important to keep in mind when you study the Bible, for the Bible is not written with chapter headings. All right. The Bible is not arranged chronologically, and that's critical to understand. But the Bible is arranged categorically. One of my dear friends, when I met him and witnessed to him, he was reading the Bible under the false presumption that it was a novel. Well, when you don't know how the Bible's laid out, it's a book. Well, maybe all he'd ever read were novels. So he was reading it through like a novel, and it wasn't making much sense to him. He was kind of picking up stuff because he's a smart guy. But he had gotten somewhere into the king's, And he didn't understand that 
he needed to find the gospels because he wasn't saved yet. But the Bible is arranged categorically, not uh, uh, chronologically. So we're going to look at the five categories now of the Old Testament. The first category is the law. The law is the first five books uh, which were written by Moses and are collectively called the Torah by the Jews or the Pentateuch in the Greek. The Torah, the law, or the Pentateuch. Penta, of course, meaning five. These books cover the creation of man to the giving of the law to the Jews or about 1,600 years. Now, oddly enough, and we'll cover this in a minute, the, the Torah is not the oldest book of the Bible or the oldest historical book of the Bible. That would be the book of Job. Job is older than Moses, and when you read the language in the book of Job, you'll find that Job had a limited understanding of who Jehovah God was. In fact, Job did not know Jehovah God as Jehovah. He just knew him as the Almighty because God hadn't fully revealed himself. God still hasn't fully revealed himself, right? In the ages to come, he's going to reveal himself. So this thing called God, this infinite creator and lover of our soul, has always got more aspects of himself that he wants to reveal to us. In the beginning, he was known as the Almighty. Then he appeared to Moses and said, I am that I am, or Jehovah, Yahweh. And then he talked about then El Shaddai, then Jehovah Rapha, then Jehovah Sitkanu, then Jehovah Nisi, then Jehovah Rama, then Jehovah Shama, all this. And it all built up and built up and built up all these names until Jesus, the name above all names. And yet there's still more of him to be revealed to us. That's why I, I just, I shake my head at the simple-minded ignorance of people who said, well, I used to go to church, but I, I stopped learning. Or I, I studied my Bible once for four years. That's it? What can you learn about infinite in four years? That's all you wanted was four years of God? Oh, your life is more important. I have to remind us, we live in America. We live in Tennessee. We live in Putnam County. We live in White County. We live in Fentress County. We live in whatever county you're from. Overton County. Bless those drivers in Overton County. There is more to our life than Putman and the Upper Cumberland and the Plateau. There's God. And we do ourselves a disservice when we chase other things more than him. Amen. So 1,600 years are covered in these first five books. So you know there's a lot more going on than just what the books were able to cover, but that's what God chose to give us. So the book of Genesis. This is the book of beginnings. That's what Genesis means, the book of beginnings. This book covers from the creation of man until Israel settles and begins to flourish in Egypt. That's the time period. Creation of man, Abraham's covenant, Abraham's offspring going into Egypt under Joseph, the new prime minister. Israel moves in there and all these cousins and aunts and uncles begin to flourish and reproduce and they become a mighty nation. That concludes Genesis. That picks up in Exodus where it says, and there arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph and he began to evil and treat God's people. And for 430 years, he enslaved them because he was afraid of them. And he used them to build the treasure cities of Ramses. And um, there's another one I can't ever remember. So we know the Jews were used to build some of the greatness that is modern or antiquitous Egypt. God's people are always being used to do the devil's work. Uh, usually it happens when they skip church. <laughs> yeah. Second book, Exodus. This is the continuation of the story of God's people that left off in Genesis. Exodus includes both the historical aspects of the Exodus and the giving of the law 
by Jehovah to Moses on Mount Sinai. So it covers both historical aspects and what we would call the law, the Mosaic law. That brings us to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus establishes the rules and regulations for Israel's religious leaders, the Levites and the priests. So the book of Leviticus is more of a a ceremonial coding and there's a lot of laws and, and regulations in there for both uh, moral code and uh, ceremonial code. Then you have the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is a historical book that documents some of Israel's experiences while they were in the wilderness. And then you have Deuteronomy, which is called the second giving of the law. It can be thought of as a refresher course given before Moses dies. And the Ten Commandments are re-recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. What's interesting, there's a lot of history as well in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, but everybody, the ignorant ones that are hell-bent on sinning, they want to call everything from Malachi backwards to Genesis the law. But in all technicality, you only have a book and a half that is law. Leviticus, part of Exodus, part of Deuteronomy. That's all the law there is. Furthermore, when you study those books, those one and a half or one and three quarters, part of Exodus, part of Deuteronomy, all of Leviticus, you only come up with 613 commands. The New Testament, which spans from Matthew to Revelation, has over a thousand commands. And it just goes to show we're not free from law. We're not saved by it, but we're not free from it either. We're saved by grace. We're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But since we're the righteousness of God, we get to understand what holiness is by the thousand plus New Testament commands. And as uh, Dr. Barclay likes to point out, the New Testament's even more strict. The Old Testament says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus says, if you think about it, you've done it. That's a little bit more strict. Jesus says, uh, thou shalt not, uh, Old Testament says, thou shalt not still. Jesus says, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. That seems a little more strict than thou shalt not steal. When Jesus says, cut it off. So, uh, you know, it just goes to show that we're actually held to a higher standard with more rules and regulations, but we should be more mature in that they're written in our heart. You know, we in here are adults. We are a thousand times more mature than our children. And we have a thousand times more rules implied upon our life. But we don't have to be reminded of them every three seconds like children do. Right? So that's a good way of looking at it. So you, even though the entire Old Testament by the ignorant is called the law, technically you only have all of Leviticus Part of Exodus, part of Deuteronomy is technically the giving of the law. And honestly, Deuteronomy is a rehash of Exodus and part of Leviticus. So maybe we distill it down to Leviticus and part of Exodus. Out of 66 books. Furthermore, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament and references it over 4,000 times. I think it's 4,109 Something ridiculous. Directly quotes, directly quotes scripture and law out of the Old Testament 695 times. So how are we free from it? See, if you study the Bible, you get to know these fun statistics and not just know them, but apply them to your life. All right, let's keep reading here. History books. So the first is the law. The second are categorized as history books. These books cover the history of Israel from the entering into the promised land through the times of the judges and the kings into Babylonian captivity, then the partial return from that captivity. About 1,100 years of history are covered. 
All right, so here's the history book. Absolutely no law given at all. You can see them walking out law. You can see them walking in the commands and covenants of Moses, but these are strictly history books. That doesn't mean they're any less inspired because Jesus Christ referred to them. What I love about Jesus Christ, among lots of things, is that when he spoke and ministered, he put all of his faith in everything from Genesis to Malachi. He believed the entire Old Testament. He quoted prophets. He quoted history. He quoted Jonah. He used Jonah as an example of his own life. He, he, he covered all these things. It's almost like Jesus had more faith in the Old Testament than most modern Christians do. You know, fancy pants, smarty marty Christians. <laughs> Those of us that think we're better than our Messiah and our Savior. But these are history books. This picks up with the book of Joshua. Joshua tells the story of Joshua's leadership as he led Israel into the promised land. So you get to see them actually take the promised land through the book of Joshua. Then you have the book of Judges. Joshua passed away. Then all the elders that knew Joshua, they passed away. And the Lord had to begin to raise up judges. This covers the lives of the judges that preceded Joshua after his death. This book covers about 400 years of history and the leadership of the 12 judges as Israel settled Canaan, also known as the promised land. So a judge, don't think about a Judge Wapner or Judge Judy or what have you. This is a judge which is more like a military governor. That's just the best way to explain it. This is, this is a provincial leader because they didn't judge all of Israel. They judged segments of Israel. Some of them were simultaneously judging. But they were more like a governor who judged and made decisions when they were uprisings or disagreements. But every one of them was anointed for military leadership with the exception of Deborah. But because Barak uh, was a chicken and fled to Kerjeth Nephtali, a city of refuge, she had to play interim judge. She sat under the tree of Deborah and she judged Israel. She made the decisions for the community and kept rule and law and order. But when finally they needed to go fight Sisera, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Barak again, and the word of the Lord came to Deborah, and she had to go get Barak and say, has not the Lord told you? Get up and go do this. And so with Deborah being the only exception, all the others were both governors and judges, or governors and, and military leaders. Now, except for Samson, he was a judge. What you see him do is kill a lot of people but never lead anybody. So those are your two exceptions. He killed a lot of people. But he never let anybody. You never see anybody follow him. You see him just do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. And he expects God to back him up. What a dangerous place to be. He learned how to, I say, pimp the anointing. He learned that as long as he stood in front of a Philistine, he was always going to win. And so when you see him use his anointing, it's always for selfish gain. He never used it to benefit Israel. In fact, Israel was terrified. They said one time, Samson, are you going to pick another fight for us? We want to deliver you to the Philistines because we're afraid of them and you're not helping us. It should never be said of Christians, we're not helping the body. Samson's testimony was he only served self and the Israelites knew it. Even though he's mightily anointed, he only served himself. He did that which interested him. He was always chasing women. His greatest miracle, my testimony, my personal belief, is when he tore the gates off the city and put them on his shoulders. I mean, we're talking castle gates. We're not talking bill gates. We're talking serious gates. It was a tremendous miracle. And then carried him 30 miles uphill to Hebron the night after he got out of bed with a whore. 
he had to tear the gates off the city because the Philistines had surrounded him. They said, we heard he's in bed with a prostitute. We can get him. He used the anointing for selfish escape. First people who killed was so he could have garments for his wedding. Selfish. Don't let us be like Samson, only selfish chasing people for, for selfish gain, chasing the opposite sex, expecting God to back us up when we make a mess. Because his testimony was he died blind, chained like an animal in a pagan temple. Well, he'd been flirting with the pagans his whole life. And his life was cut short. He only judged Israel 20 years. And we can't even say he righteously judged them. He only walked around for 20 years with a judge's mantle. All right, enough on the book. There's some cool stories in the Bible if you'll study them out. Brings us to the book of Ruth. <laughs> this book is the history of the family of Elimelech during the time of the judges. So Ruth actually runs during the book of Judges, but it's a separate book. It tells the story of a widow who leaves all to serve God, the God of Israel. The story of Ruth is a foreshadowing of Christ's redemption, and it, it reveals the Israeli doctrine of a kinsman redeemer. And how when you can't redeem yourself, you have someone, a kinsman, who will come and redeem you and buy you back, which is how it foreshadows Christ redeeming us. On top of that, Ruth, who was a Moabitess, that means pagan, demonized, hellbound, because she marries Boaz, she becomes the mother of Salmon, Boaz being actually the son of Rahab the harlot. Remember that? Actually, it was Salmon that married Rahab. They have Boaz. Boaz marries Ruth. And Ruth, Ruth being a Moabitess and Rahab being a Jerichoitess and a prostitute, they become the grandmothers of Jesus Christ. Pagans who wanted more of God than even Israel did. Isn't that amazing? It's the same thing's happening today. We have lost people who want more of God than the Christians who are in. They're begging to come to church. We got Christians, we're trying to beg to show up for church. Well, all these stories have happened before. We're not the first ones to be dumb. That's the other awesome thing about the Bible. It reveals the flaws and mistakes of God's precious people. It's not sanitized. The Bible doesn't clean up the adultery of David. The Bible shows all the, major, the biggest, dumbest things David ever did. The Bible goes into deep detail about it. I mean, if it was a man-made book, don't you think you'd clean that stuff up? Don't politicians do that? Sanitize their image? The Bible doesn't sanitize any of man's image. The Bible magnifies man's sin so that man will look for a savior. That's what's so cool about it. First and second Samuel, these two books cover the lives of Samuel, the last judge. So this is kind of a continuation and a conclusion to the book of Judges. And it covers the life of Saul, Israel's first king, and David, Israel's second and most famous king. That's the book of Samuel. It covers his life and his life interacting with Saul and David. Then you have first and second kings. These two books cover the history of the kings, so you'll have some overlapping with David and Samuel and Saul, and uh, covers the history of the kings from the end of David's reign until the Babylonian captivity. So Samuel stops at David's death, but Chronicles covers from David all the way to Josiah and the last kings being carried away into Babylonian captivity. So there's overlap in history there from different perspectives. Then you have First and Second Chronicles. These two books cover the history of the kings beginning with the end of King Saul's reign until the Babylonian captivity. So you have sequels there, and they each deal with more uh, details than the previous ones do. That's why we study all of them. And you really have to study them over and over and over again to remember which one of those six books was that story about David in. 
because it gets covered in all of them. And once you study it and study it and study it, it becomes very simple to remember. But of course, that means you have to study it. There's, and the Bible says in Corinthians that all these things are recorded as examples for us, that we would not be partakers uh, of idolatry, that we would not be wicked. So we need to study the Old Testament. To me, studying the Old Testament is some of the most fun studying there is because it's history. It's battles. It's Jehovah God showing up. You can learn a lot if you're willing to put down the remote, if you're willing to make some time for God. And on top of that, there's nothing you can read that will strengthen your life like the Bible. Just simply studying the Bible and spending time in there makes you bigger on the inside. It washes you. You show me a backslidden Christian, I'll show you one that hasn't opened their Bible in months. You show me a discouraged Christian, I'll show you one that hasn't opened their Bible. Because just by opening it and reading it and reading it out loud and digging into it, it it's like throwing a battery on a charger. It's, it's like throwing gasoline on a fire. It's, uh, if, we, if we get discouraged and cast down, it's like a fire that's about to go out. And we don't have a right to say, I don't understand why I'm going out. I don't understand why I'm so uh, cooling off. When's the last time you threw some wood on the fire? Um, six months? Seven months? Is that my fault? <laughs> There's a pile of wood there called a Bible. Open it up and throw some wood on the fire. Until then, how can we feel sorry for you? Here in America, we not only have one Bible apiece, we have five or six or seven or eight. And if you have a smartphone, you have every Bible in every language known to man for free or 99 cents. We are without excuse. If your life stinks, not the Bible's fault. If your life stinks, it is not the Bible's fault. Amen. Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah are considered to be one book by the Jews, but we have them broken apart in our modern Bible. They tell the story of the men that began the return to Jerusalem from exile to begin the rebuilding of Israel. Ezra was a scribe and priest who brought back some of the Israelites from captivity. You also have Nehemiah. Nehemiah returned from exile to rebuild the wall around the now-completed temple that Zerubbabel built. Zerubbabel is covered in the book of Ezra. Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries. Zerubbabel was 105 years before them, 110 years before them. But also, during the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, you had the minor prophets like Malachi and Zechariah. Uh, these guys, Haggai, these guys were contemporaries. These guys were prophesying to Ezra and Nehemiah to encourage them. Don't quit. Don't give up. Malachi is a prophet of restoration. He's prophesying during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, saying, great, the temple's built. Where's my tithe? You built the city. You built the wall. Now you live in protection. Why is my house neglected? So just showing you that they're not in chronological order. They're arranged categorically. That brings us to Esther. Now, all this is before the book of Job and Psalms. We got to get moving here. The, the book of Esther covers part of the history of Israel's 70 years of exile. Ezra and Nehemiah are after the exile. So uh, uh, historically or chronologically, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are totally out of order. But that's not neither here nor there. That's just the way it's organized because <laughs> they're history books. Esther was a Jewess who won the heart of the Persian king Xerxes. You can study Xerxes in your, uh, US, uh, your world history book. 
The Bible calls him Ahasuerus. He was King Xerxes. He was the Persian king. He would have been the king that, bought, that fought at the Battle of Thermopylae and fought against King Leonidas of the Spartans, not the White County Spartans. <laughs> the real Spartans that Sparta's named after. But that was Esther's husband, which is really neat. And that battle and his defeat there began to fulfill prophecy by Jeremiah that the Persians and Daniel, that they would not succeed. So we have history backing up the Bible and the Bible telling you exactly what the history book's gonna read 2,000 years from now. The Koran doesn't have any of that kind of detail in it. <laughs> uh, she won the Persian king's heart, Xerxes, and became queen. This book reveals God's faithfulness to Israel during their exile from Israel. Poetry. Now we've got several books of poetry, five books to be exact. These are called the books of poetry because of some of their writing styles. And now as you read it, you're not gonna hear poetry like Dr. Seuss poetry. I, I should have done research and it's not an anastogram or a lot of the Psalms, ah, it's right there, I can see it. A lot of the Psalms, each, each verse begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the next verse is the second letter and an acronastic. Mm, it's right there. That's a slip in me. I'll come up with it. That's poetry. It doesn't mean it's going to rhyme when you translate it to English. It doesn't mean you even appreciate the fact that the first verse starts with A, the second verse starts with B, the last verse starts with Z, like the Proverbs 31 woman. But that's part of the poetry of the Hebrews. So you have Job. Job is the oldest book of the Bible and records the tragedies that befell Job at the hand of Satan. In the end, Job is healed and his health is restored. His wealth is restored. Job was not an Israelite. Job had no covenant with God. Job did not know about Jesus Christ. Job only had a relationship with the Almighty. Oldest book of the Bible. Even though it's not the book of Genesis, Moses wrote the book of Genesis, but Moses wrote the book of Genesis after Job wrote the book of Job. Some other thoughts, just to throw it out there of world history. There are those that believe Job built the first pyramid of Giza, the Grand Pyramid. Because the Grand Pyramid of Giza that the smaller pyramids were modeled after predate them by thousands of years. And they're not temp it's not a temple. There's no tomb, there's no gold, there's no treasure. But when you start looking at some of the chambers and passages in there, you can overlay the gospel and actually the entire Old Testament in it. And when you do the cosmology and the astronomy backwards and you start looking at the tubes that go out, you start seeing what stars they point to. And they happen to be constellations that talk about the lion Leo and the virgin. And it's almost like a giant future device prophesying of a virgin giving birth to a son who would become a lion. Pretty cool history. That was all worked out 120 years ago. Uh, say again? The, the, the type of poetry that's, okay. A, an acrostic, it's an acrostic. That's what I was, thank you, ma'am. An acrostic. That brings us to Psalms. This is a collection of praises. We we're all familiar with Psalms that were originally set to music. David is the author of most of the Psalms. However, one, uh, other authors did contribute. Asaph contributed about 11 or 12 Psalms. The sons of Asaph were probably the greatest worshipers the world has ever known. And so the Lord came to live into the hearts of the believers. 
Asaph's testimony of worship was so strong that 400 years after Asaph was dead, his sons, his grandsons, his great-grandsons were called up by Ezra and Nehemiah to reinitiate worship in Israel again. How strong is your testimony as a worshiper that your great-great-great-great-grandchildren still know how to carry on the family worship? That's a, that's a powerful testimony. Nowadays, we lose it in half a generation, which is shameful. Uh, David is the author of the most, uh, though other authors did contribute. Studying the Psalms will teach you how to relate to God. You have the book of Proverbs. Every Christian should live in the book of Proverbs. It will make you wise beyond measure. And in this generation, it doesn't take much to be wise because most of this generation is dumb. You study a proverb a day, you, you'll be a rocket scientist. You'll be drinking mensa water. You'll be so smart, they won't know what to do with you. The Bible says in James 1, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of the Father. Proverbs is a good place to start digging for that wisdom. This is a collection of maxims, parables, or proverbs given to produce wisdom in the reader. Solomon was the author. Studying Proverbs will fill you with wisdom and teach you how to relate to people. Now, just because Solomon was a proverb doesn't mean they're all Solomon's proverbs. Some of them his mother gave to them. Most of them his father gave to them, but uh, Solomon wrote them down. You have Ecclesiastes. This is a collection of proverbs given by Solomon after his life fell apart in sin. I jokingly have always called it Proverbs Part 2, I Really Messed Up. Because it's all about vanity and how, and, and Ecclesiastes starts off by telling you how Solomon ruined his life. He said, I set my heart to no pleasure and I kept nothing from myself. That's how Solomon ruined his life. And Ecclesiastes is a bunch of wisdom for how to not do that to yourself. And a lot of observations he made in his stupidity. And they're kind of darker proverbs because they're not very encouraging, but they're full of rich, rich wisdom. But the heart of all of those proverbs are, I kept nothing from myself that I wanted. I sought pleasure and to know it. Well, that's dumb, Solomon. Yes, I know. That's why I wrote a sequel to my famous bestseller, Proverbs. We called it Ecclesiastes. Uh, these tend to have a darker tone as Solomon was reflecting how nothing in life really matters if you don't have God in your life. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Song of Solomon, also called Canticles. This is a poetic book that discusses romantic love and marital intimacy. This is Solomon talking about the Shunammite woman that he so desperately wants to marry. And she relates back to him how she longs for his kisses and she longs to hold him. And, and she says, awaken not love before the time. And so it's a book of romance. It's intimate romance. Some folks want to put the interpretation of Jesus and the church on there. But I don't see Jesus wanting to be physically intimate with us, which is kind of a weird stretch just take it for what it is. Solomon says, your eyes, your neck, your breasts. I don't think the Lord Jesus is looking at the church saying, your breasts. But it does reveal to us how a, a holy man is to sexually desire his holy wife. And so it's, an, it's a powerful book and a lot of preachers stay away from it because it scares them. Major prophets. These books reveal God calling his people back to himself through his prophets. Isaiah succeeded in calling God's people back. Jeremiah did not succeed. Ezekiel and Daniel prophesied from slavery or captivity. These prophecies were not just limited to their day. Many of the prophets foresaw the coming Messiah in even the church age. They're called major prophets because they're big, as in lengthwise. Minor prophets are called minor prophets not because they're insignificant or lesser insignificant, but because their writings are shorter. It ought to tell you how messed up Israel was and how bad God wanted to save them when Isaiah and Jeremiah are 60, verse, 60 chapters long or thereabout. 
And he's trying, this tells you how stubborn. You sit there and yell and yell and yell, try to get them to turn their life around. And it takes apparently 60 something chapters to do it. Isaiah prophesied for 40 years during the reign of King Hezekiah. Jeremiah prophesied for 40 years from before exile into the exile. They cut his head off when he wouldn't shut up. They liked his preaching at first, but then they got old because they wouldn't repent. I have found that though you can't cut my head off, you can cut your church attendance. Because you don't want to hear what the prophet has to say or the preacher. And so though in this day and age, you can't chop my head off, uh, you can chop your church attendance off and go find something that tickles your ears. Lamentations, these are Jeremiah's observations of and mourning for the ransacking of Jerusalem after the invasions by foreign armies. How, how, how hard must it be on Jeremiah to prophesy for half of his life saying, turn around or else this is coming. Turn around or else this is coming and then live through the coming and watch her be torn down and watch her babies be dashed against rocks and watch women wail for their infants that were murdered by Babylon, Babylonian armies when Jeremiah said, it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. So lamentations, the weeping and mourning, the way he's called the wailing prophet because he couldn't stop it. Ezekiel prophesied from captivity for about 22 years. Daniel prophesied from captivity as a prominent governor of Babylon and president, actually. His visions and prophecies foresaw thousands of years of history to come. In fact, a lot of uh, Daniel's prophecy still hasn't come to pass which means you have to be very careful when you want to criticize people prophesying and say, well, see, it didn't come to pass. We should kill you. Well, most of these guys' prophecies haven't come to pass yet. They didn't, well, they did kill them, but not for false prophecy, for preaching the truth. That brings us to the minor prophets. These books continue to demonstrate God's desire to have his people serve him. Did you know God saved you so you would serve him? And God still wants us to serve him. These are considered minor prophets because the books are shorter in length, not because of their significance. And they are Hosea. He prophesied during the time of King Jeroboam. He prophesied against the northern kingdom's sin and their moral decline. The book of Joel. The, this, uh, the time of Joel's prophecy is not specifically known, perhaps as early as uh, 850 BC during King Joash or even during the return from Babylon. That one is a kind of an enigma in, uh, in church history. Amos prophesied during the days of King Uzziah. Obadiah prophesied the fall of Edom during the king of Jer Jehoram. Jonah prophesied during the time of King Jeroboam. Jonah was sent to preach repentance to the Gentile city of Nineveh. Jonah shows us God's love for the entire world. Jonah was a prophet, but he was also one of the first missionaries and evangelists. Micah prophesied during the time of King Hezekiah. And again, I have all these dates here so you can see they're not in chronology. They're not in any kind of chronological order. So you understand that if they're lumped together because they're minor prophets. And as a side note that, I don't know if it matters to you or not, some of these are prophets to the northern kingdom, that is Israel and their wicked kings, and some of these are prophets to Judah only. After Solomon, the kingdom was divided between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. So you had prophets that prophesied to Judah's kings, and you had prophets that prophesied to Israel's kings. And so these, you'll have to look in these minor prophets to see who are they prophesying to? Is that the northern kingdom or is that Judah? And uh, so for whatever that's worth. Nahum prophesied against Nineveh about 100 years after Jonah. Nineveh apparently only repented for a season. And after Jonah's revival, Nahum 
came along 100 years later and said, that's it, you're done, you repented, but you didn't stay repented, so God wiped them out, and you still can't find much in Nineveh to this day. They fulfilled the prophecy. All the stones that were used to build Nineveh were drug away and used other places, and they've never been used to build Nineveh again. Pretty neat. God's prophecies came true. Habakkuk prophesied during the time of either King Josiah or King Jehoiakim. He prophesied against Judah's sins, and that punishment would come by the hands of the Chaldeans, and it happened. Zephaniah prophesied during the king, time of King Josiah of the impending judgment coming to Israel for her sins. King Josiah was Judah's last good king. And actually, Pharaoh Necho killed King Josiah because King Josiah backslid near the end of his life. Zephaniah, uh, excuse me, Habakkuk, uh, Zephaniah, Haggai. Haggai prophesied and preached during the time of Ezra, and he encouraged Zerubbabel to keep building the temple. Haggai is called a prophet of restoration. Zechariah prophesied and preached during the time of Ezra. He is also called a prophet of restoration. Malachi prophesied about 550 BC. His major theme was honoring God. Malachi is a prophet of restoration. After his writings, the heavens were sealed until Jesus Christ. There was no open vision. There was no communication. There was no more writing. The Maccabees, which are a famous Jewish history book, are totally apocryphal. That means they are not God-inspired. They're just history, though they can be studied for some historical significance. Many uh, theologians reference them because of the historical quality. But after Malachi, God's not writing scriptures to until the gospels open up. Brings us to the New Testament. You guys are listening well. We got three minutes to run through the New Testament. <sighs> Tell you, you can take two or three semesters of just Old Testament survey. You can honestly take, spend your whole life studying one of the minor prophets. <laughs> so this is a lot of info. But this is how you study the Bible. You got to understand what it is first. The Gospels. These are the books that document the life of Jesus Christ covering approximately 33 years. They include Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel according to St. Matthew was, uh, was the first to be written about four years after Christ's ascension. Mark and Luke's gospels were written about 60 AD. Many believe Luke's gospel to be Peter's account. So Luke was basing his gospel on Peter's account of what happened. John's gospel was last written, and it was written about 90 AD. And when you study the gospel of John, it has a totally different flavor and theme than all the others. John's gospel never once covers Satan, doesn't even deal with him. Because he's like, what's the point? He's defeated. What do we care? He has very few miracles because his emphasis is the love of God. His emphasis is the word made flesh. His emphasis is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And it's also one of the shortest of the four gospels, Mark being the shortest. History, uh, we only have one history book in the New Testament. It's the book of Acts or Acts of the Apostles. It chronicles the history of the early church covering a period of approximately 30 years and was written by Luke. And there's need about Acts chapter 13 or 14. Uh, you can see when Luke jumps in the narrative because the verb tense, excuse me, the personal pronoun tense goes from they to us and we. And there's a strong demarcation. They, the early church, they did this and they prayed and they and Peter and John came and they and they. And when we joined them and from that point forward, all the pronoun tense is Luke including himself, which is really cool and so subtle. It just lets you know how personal and how accurate it really is. Pauline epistles, these are letters that Paul wrote to the many churches he established and pastored for a season. The books of Timothy, Titus, and Philemon are epistles written to those individuals. Philemon, who was a runaway slave, actually Philemon was the slave owner of a runaway slave. Uh, the runaway slave, and the name escapes me, he went on to actually become the bishop of Ephesus after 
Timothy left Ephesus. So the runaway slave who got saved in one of Paul's meetings and they're chatting. This is what church history tells us. They're chatting and Paul says, where are you from? I'm from uh, uh, such and such. Oh, do you know Philemon? He's one of my converts here. Um, Yeah, that's the slave master I just ran away from. And Paul says, you got to go back and take him this letter. And that, that runaway slave not only got saved, but apparently qualified to become the bishop of the church of Ephesus and might have been who Jesus was dealing with in Revelation chapter two. Just neat stuff if you bother to study. If I'm the only Bible study you get, you're missing out on so much. Amen. God wants to talk to all of you for himself. These are epistles written to individuals. They establish church doctrine. Pauline epistles do protocol, prophesy about the last days and teach us who we are in Christ. They include Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and Hebrews. And many believe Hebrews and Galatians are one book, but that was later divided. General epistles, these epistles written by folks other than Paul. They establish doctrine and include prophecies about the last day. They include James, written by James. First and second Peter, written by Peter, and first, second, third John and Jude, written by their namesakes as well, also great apostles. The only book of prophecy we have, though we have major prophecy in the Old Testament, the only major book of prophecy we have is one, the, the Revelation, or as my little girl sings it in her song, the Nevelation. <laughs> it is considered by some to be the most exciting of the books of the Bible. can also be the hardest to understand because one must have a good working knowledge of the entire rest of the Bible, 65 other books, in order to somewhat grasp what is being communicated. And as Dr. Hilton Sutton would say, the Revelation is a book of hope because God's book is a book of hope. It should only scare you if you're backslidden and hell-bent on sinning against your God in which case the Bible is doing its job by scaring some to repentance, as the book of Jude says. Do not be overwhelmed, though even to cover all this in 45 minutes might be overwhelming. Obey the letter of Paul to young Timothy and study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. The awesome thing about our Bible, it's not like the book of Mormon, it doesn't change. You keep studying it and you keep studying it and you keep studying it and you keep studying it. It will become more real to you and more alive to you. Don't let the minor prophets discourage you. There's stuff I read in the minor prophets and I just say, I don't got a clue what that even says. And then, then there's four verses I get. And then there's another 19 verses. I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even know who these people are. I don't think anybody does, but God will bring it to pass. But you just keep studying it and keep studying it. If you will look at the Bible and study the Bible every day in two or three years, which may seem like a long time, but it'll pass it with the blink of an eye, you'll have a better working knowledge and a better confidence of your Bible. One of the greatest weaknesses we face as Americans, Christians, is we don't know our Bible. Therefore, we are subject to every wind of doctrine. And the Bible will put a hunger in you and a determination to serve God like you never knew. Without the Bible, you're not going to serve God. Father, I thank you for this first Sunday school on how to study the Bible. Bless our understanding. Bless our mind. Bless our hunger for your word. May we serve you. May we not be like any of the scoundrels of the Bible. May we be like all the great faith patriarchs. May we glorify you in the weeks ahead through this Bible study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.